I'm finally getting to have the conversation I've been wanting to have for years. My friend Barb Wallace, uh, a television writer extraordinaire, actor, director, has a, has a pet peeve about a certain physical act of staging on stage that, that she doesn't care for. It's the false exit. Barb, explain to me, what is your problem with the false exit? Well, Austin, it's essentially three steps to nowhere. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 769, The False Exit. Wallace is an old friend and a successful TV writer who began her career as an actor and director at Second City in Chicago. And she and I have debated one specific bit of stage business for about a decade now. I finally had the opportunity to have this discussion with her again in front of a live microphone. And as you'll hear, we also got to talk about how her career went from sketch comedy in Chicago to TV writing in L.A. and New York. The actor turns, takes three, sometimes two and a half steps, and then turns suddenly as though they just had a thought and comes back into the room. I believe once an actor is going to leave stage, they better get off that stage and somebody better stop them. And if they don't, they got to leave. So it's so so your 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 um, uh, your hatred of the move is when it's not motivated. When it's just a piece of false staging, like choreography. It is like choreography. Yeah. That's exactly what it's yeah. like. I would say that actors use it when they don't know what else to do. And they don't like to hold still. Interesting. Interesting. See, okay. Well, all right. Well, this makes me feel better because for me, the false exit is a signature move. I, I can see that with you. I can totally see that the false exit, the three steps to nowhere, and with you, maybe four or five steps to nowhere, and then maybe a leg up and a big turn. No, but that's more stage. That's the Jerry Zach's version of the false exit. My false exit is I'm going, and if you don't pick up your cues, I'll be gone, and then I'll be off stage. That's not a false exit. That's, a, that's exactly an exit. Yes. That is an exit, and that is forcing your other actor to do something. Exactly right. It's, 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 it's creating the illusion of an offstage world, that there's a, there are places other than the reality on stage that there is someplace else the character has to be. And even if that offstage world is my piece of chocolate, in my dressing room. That is offstage world enough for me. What is my motivation? To get to that piece of chocolate in my dressing room. Exactly. So, so it's, it, so we're looking, it's, it's, it's how you use the move, like anything. Uh, the three steps to nowhere, the falls exit, it's a tool that, that sh can be used appropriately and inappropriately. Is that fair? No. It no, can never always, be used. It's always wrong. It's That's always wrong? feeling about it. It's like the actor who doesn't try to disguise their breath. I believe that all actors, of course, need to breathe. I've heard they're human. And when they breathe in, they often use it as part of their acting that, look, I'm acting breath. 
I also hate that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear your breath. And if I have to hear it, that should be because you can't help it, not because you're using it to show me that you're acting. How hard you're acting. Exactly. So you would prefer to not have actors breathe at all, which is a... Yeah. So many people feel that way. Yeah. You're not not alone. I'm not alone in that. You're not alone in that. Um, How does the administration of these pet peeves help you in your work as an actor or a director or as a writer? It doesn't. (laughs) Not in the least. They're they're good parties. It's party favors, if you like. It's what I can chat about with you or I can say at a party to sound clever. And those are really the only uses of these pet peeves. It's yes, it's it, it, it's ex, it's exceptional use of for 15, 20 minutes of banter that can be used as a podcast, which is a beast that must be filled every week. Exactly, and I'm so glad to be helping you feed the mouth of that beast. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, so you are a second city, a veteran of Chicago's venerated second city. And you began as an actor. You also did some, I think, stand-up. You, you've, you've not done any stand-up. You've done. But I've d- done no stand-up at all. Never, okay. never. So, t- so tell me the evolution because you've, you've, you've had a, a hugely successful career, and on on a lot of different levels. So I'm curious about that journey. Since no one's ever heard of me, I don't know that you could call my career hugely successful. <laughs> You're stealthily successful. I am. I've I've made a good living. Yeah. Um, I began as uh, I moved to Chicago to just work in publishing, to get a job, Mm. to move out of the East Coast. And I stumbled onto Second City uh, through a friend of mine, Kevin Crowley, who I met through another friend in college. And I started taking improv classes with him. And then we formed a comedy duo. I I had never heard of Second City, the theater, Uh until I moved to Chicago. So I I didn't really have any preconceptions about it. Had you done, like, plays in high school or stuff? No. No, nothing. Wow. And so so the comedy duo wasn't stand-up. That's what I thought was stand-up. No. It was sketches and stuff. No, it was sketches. Okay. It was sketches. Okay. And you ended up, you were performed, am I right? I'm probably wrong. Are you, am I right that you were on one of the first um, um, majority, majority female cast in a Second City show? No, I directed the first... Um, it wasn't a majority female cast. I wanted it to be half and half, uh-huh. and uh, it ended up being three women and four men. But it was more women than before. Before, it had only been two women. So you, so you got right up to the glass ceiling. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. I got to the glass ceiling. <laughs> I touched it. I, I fogged it up, and then I went back down. And um, and how did you meet? How did you meet my wife, D. Ryan? You, your wife was my student when I was um, maybe on the main stage at Second City. I was also teaching classes, and uh, D. was in one of my classes. And is it true that I? I mean, I've known D. for oh gosh, thirty-five years now. Is it true that everything she learned, she learned from you? That's correct. That is correct. Even things that maybe are very private for the two of you, I also taught D. Wow. So I do have a lot to thank you, you for. You do. You do. You do. Yeah. And we shared a midwife, as you recall. That's right. When, that. when you moved to L.A., D was pregnant. You needed a midwife. I was pregnant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, uh, Quincy and Maggie are about the same age. Yeah. And, yeah, we had the same midwife. You, you, you've been there for us at every step of our, of our lives and career and every step of this podcast. So I thank you for that. Uh, but then you became 
a really hugely successful, but still unknown to the majority of people, uh, writer for television. How did that happen? And is it what you would recommend for any young actor? Well. Who has writing skills? Or even maybe not. <laughs> Anybody should create their own material yes. if they can. Everybody should always be creating their yeah. own content if they're able to, especially nowadays when there's the internet and there's so many outlets to create material, first of all, with the technology, phones, and just how easy it is to create it yeah. um, with the camera technology now and uh, the avenues to just put stuff on YouTube to create videos that other people can see. It's not as lucrative as it was when I started. Honestly, the dispersal of the industry into these streaming platforms has hurt writers' incomes. And actors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard for me to say whether it's a good move or not. Um, I heard a casting director tell me once uh, that, uh, oh, but, but with this multiplicity of platforms now, there's so many opportunities to get your name out and your, 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 your uh, content out, which is, yes, true, but all the salaries have gone down across the board, and yet companies like Amazon and Netflix and the studios somehow still manage to make tons and tons of money, so I'm not sure how that works. I couldn't really tell you how it works, except that they continued to operate the way they've always operated, which is that they own it. Yeah. And when they own it, then they can manage the income streams. So when you moved, when you moved out to Los Angeles, had you did you already have writing credits, or did you go out to LA and start developing your own material and get an agent and get hired as a thing? How did that all happen? Well, I write with a writing partner who I am also married to, and I'm sure you're going to interview him someday because he's just fascinating, and he has done stand-up. Um, and he has a features career. I'm and he'll tell you he worked in features uh, any time you can ask him or not ask him. Um, oh, I'll definitely ask him. It's the beast that must be fed. It's like someone who went to Harvard. You don't have to ask. <laughs> he'll tell you. Um, Hey, this is Joel Murray, Freddie Rumson from Mad Men. And I tell you, I could just pee my pants over how great this Reduced Shakespeare Company's podcast is. Fabulous. Where can you RSC the RSC? We're still the remote Shakespeare Company until this November 2021. And you can find our next round of performance dates at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com. You can check out our Facebook and Twitter feeds for the latest information. But as always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for a specific box office venue and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with television writer, Barb Wallace, who was telling me about the strange and wonderful TV gigs she was getting early in her career. We had a couple of really random low-rent TV gigs. Uh, one was for a friend of mine who was uh, doing shows at VH1, and we wrote the wraparounds. Uh, for a music show at the time, sometimes you'd get a famous host to uh, talk about different songs, and then a music video would come up with that sure. song, sure. and the show was called uh, Natalie Cole's Standards or something like that. And we wrote what Natalie Cole was going to say okay. in between each music video. And then um, 
we had uh, lots of friends who went to work at SNL. I interviewed for a job at SNL. I didn't get it. Um, our friend Christine Zander, wonderful writer, had uh, signed up to do a gig called Search for the Ideal Man. And again, it was, yeah. I think it was hosted, hosted by uh, Scott Bayo and somebody else. And I can't remember who. Uh, but uh, we wrote kind of the some sketches, I think, I can't remember, and host material for this show, mm-hmm. which was produced by uh, a really wonderful producer who's gone on to do a million great things. Um, and I'm going to give her a shout-out. It's Debbie Liebling, who was at Comedy Central for years. Mm-hmm. And the reason she never gets enough credit for basically shepherding films like Dodgeball for being the person who put South Park on to Comedy Central. She really had to fight to get that show on. She's just an incredibly talented producer, and she's a friend of ours. And uh, we wrote it for her, and it was dreadful. Um, (laughs) Debbie and her husband, maybe Alan was directing it, her husband, and she was the producer, and we were the writers. And The great news is that... um, I, Tom would remember this better than I. It was either one of the earthquakes or the Los Angeles riots that preempted the airing of the show, and it never aired, which I consider uh, what saved our careers. <laughs> well, how did, but how did that lead then to um, writing for sitcoms and then creating your own sitcoms? Uh It didn't directly lead to it, except it introduced us to a lot of people. Uh, We had uh, a friend, Nora Dunn, who was also on Saturday Night Live. We had come up together in Chicago. She was a little bit before us. And when we moved to L.A., she had another friend, Sally Lapidus, um, another really good TV writer who wrote with a a woman named Pam Ells. They were so lovely and kind to us. And uh, Nora introduced us to them. And we gave them um, one of the scripts that we had been working on, a spec script, as it is called, a sample script from an existing television show. And it was a Seinfeld. And uh, they liked it and very kindly passed it on um, to someone at Murphy Brown. It it might have been Michael Patrick King. I'm not sure. And they hired us for our first job, which was a, uh, you know, shows are encouraged to hire freelancers to come in and do one or two episodes a year, especially an established Mm -hmm. show. And at that time, Murphy Brown was like in one of its last seasons. And so we got that job. And once you get a job like that, you'll get an agent. And then that's what happened. And then that leads to more writing assignments and then sometimes to be hired as staff writers and And producers. And at the time, that was the goal. And that happened much more frequently if you had a show like that or a credit like that, you could get a staff job more easily. Again, it's much harder now. So we got a staff job, um, and we did uh, staffing for maybe three years, and uh, then we got into writing pilots. And am I right, or am I mythologizing your career that... um, Please do. Okay. (laughs) That you, um, that you, you first brought Broadway... And now, television legend Christine Baranski to the small screen is was that you, was that you? Are you responsible for Christine Baranski's legendary TV status? I'm responsible for nothing about Christine Baranski. She had already been on Sybil, and we oh, right, ended right. up with her. Luckily, we ended up with her on our show that was on the air called Welcome to New York, and uh, not a lovelier, more talented gem of a person. 
who can turn dust into gold. And did it every day. Uh, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. wonderful colleagues. So much fun. So easy to work with. Well, so 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 it sounds as if the lesson I'm hearing is that um, make friends with talented people in your youth and continue to stay friends with them because as their career go, takes them to places, they can sometimes bring you along with them and then you start to have your own network and you bring along other people. Is that sort of how it works? Is it still a people's people business? Um, I would say, uh, yeah, don't stay friends with people just <laughs> because they're going to be successful. But um, if your material is worth reading, uh, people will pass it on. Yeah. So write the best thing you can. Don't write what you think people want to read. You should write what you think is best. There's a lot of misconceptions. People try to imitate television. Yeah. Nobody wants to see an imitation of television. They want to see something better than that because every writer wrote something better than what you right. saw and and so write something better and then if it's good people will pass it on and then when you're in a position don't be an asshole and pass on other talented writers you shouldn't pass on everything you know as you know I teach now at Northwestern yeah. students will often ask to read material and pass it on and I never do Never, yeah, yeah. because... You don't even agree to read it. No, yeah. exactly, I don't. Yeah. First of all, you don't have that many favors, mm -hmm. and certainly at my age you have fewer and fewer favors, and you're not going to use them willy-nilly. It's yeah. got to be really worth it to uh, pass on material. So, and, and I say that not to be a jerk. It's just that people have a lot of material to read. Like yeah. producers in LA are reading constantly. Yeah. And if you're going to try to talk somebody into hiring a writer, which we, Tom and I have both done mm -hmm. because we think the writers are so talented, um, it's a heavy lift and you want to make sure that uh, you don't waste that so that it doesn't work for the next person who's really good. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And that's the thing too. People... It's like I, what I say to actors, which is that they, you walk into an audition room, they want you to be amazing. Oh, absolutely. You know? And I've been on the other side of the table now. And yeah. yes, you are a solution. I have this friend, Michael Angler. He's a really great um, director. director yeah. yeah. And he said they, the actors don't realize, because Michael was an actor also, if they only knew we have a problem. Yeah. And if you could solve it for me. Oh, my day would be over today, yeah. and I wouldn't be back here worrying and losing sleep over whether I'm going to be able to cast this part. So you should think of every audition as a huge opportunity. You are offering something to the producers. You are not wasting their time. They are dying for you to be good, yeah. begging for it. They want it to work. So that's the lesson. Be good. <laughs> yeah, be good and be yourself, you know, yeah. bring your authentic voice to everything, your writing and your acting, because that is what people want to see. They do not want to see an imitation. They really do want to see something new and authentic. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. I am so glad we cleared this up. A false exit is bad. An actual exit is good, but only if you actually go or another actor successfully prevents you from going. 
Send us your favorite bits of stage business via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow Barb Wallace on Twitter and Instagram at BAWallace913. You can follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, on Instagram at the.shakespeareance, and I hope you'll check out my new website, The Shakespeareance. There you can find more information on how I can help you with monologues, presentations, or writing projects. Check out theshakespeareance.com and my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Austin Titchener. Thanks, as always, to stage juggler Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Emily Scotcher. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Joel Murray from Mad Men, Dharma and Greg, and now the new show Heels on the Stars Network. Special thanks also to D. Ryan and Barb's husband Tom Wolf for playing a surprisingly loud game of Jenga in the background of this conversation. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 769-2307 of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Oh, fuck, that's only four minutes. Um, uh, <laughs> um, this podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to reduce for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.